Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed. You are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swatha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. As always, we're going to give you the news that you may not have heard on your airwaves this week. That's right. First up, we're going to have Professor Kimberly Weatherall on the line to discuss the government's COVID safe app and the privacy concerns that many of us are feeling. After that, we have Ed Miller, the campaign's director for economic fairness at GetUp. He'll be talking to us about the spy like in unemployment during the coronavirus and how it's affecting the financial future of young people. And as always, mm. we want to hear from you. Tell, Tell us your thoughts. <laughs> Give me your anger about Corona. I'm feeling everyone is really um, easing into it and mellowing out. Some people are thriving. Not fair. I mm. want to hear from you. What do you think about the government-issued app to track coronavirus in Australia? Are, are you worried that Skirma is going to be looking over your shoulder on a trip to Woolies? I don't think anyone's worried about their trip to Woolies. I think it's trips elsewhere. <laughs> True. Oh, oh yeah. wow. That was, that no, was I, way too I, revealing. I mean, sorry, Shami before the show um, told me that she is um, taking swims in Bondi because she's a Bondi resident and is one of the exclusive clique of people allowed to go into Bondi, which is very unfair. I'm sorry. Um, I'm not. Enjoy your corona-infested Bondi award. I, oh, <laughs> you ruined it. <laughs> Tell us what you think. Text us in on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at FBI. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks. Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. The government released an app last week called COVID Safe. The purpose of the app? To record those who have corona or could be exposed to it by essentially tracking our every move. People are divided on the issue of the app's privacy and how the data will be used. There are also concerns over how it'll work, especially for iPhone users. Well, to help demystify this topic, we have Professor Kimberly Weatherall, who specializes in technology law, here to discuss exactly what this new app is all about. Hey, Kim, thanks for being here. Very welcome. Good to be here. Thank you. So what is the COVID Safe app and how does it work? So this is an app that's been developed for the government that people can download onto their phone. And the basic idea is that this app will... Um, collect information about who you've been close to with the ultimate purpose of being able to identify if you've been close to someone who's uh, tested positive for COVID-19. But it basically does that using Bluetooth. So your phone, when you've got the app running, sends out these little pings, you know, little IDs that are generated and it collects all of the pings from other phones using the app that it sees around it. And it collects and stores that data on your phone. And then if at some point you test positive for COVID-19, the app will ask you, can I upload all of these pings that have been collected in this period when you might have been contagious, upload that to a central data store. That data then goes to contact tracers working for health departments around the country, you know, in New South Wales, for example, so that they can then see who you've been sufficiently close to for a sufficient period of time or sufficiently often that they might be at risk of having COVID-19 and then the contact tracers can get in touch with those people. Mm. So there's been some confusion over how it works on iPhones. And as an Android user, I'm quite smug about this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But most recently, uh, the government minister said that 
the app might not work as well if the iPhone is in low power mode. Uh, do you think these technical details might have been made clear to the potential users of this app? Well, I mean, I suppose that, you know, I've looked at the information on the government website and it does talk about how you need to have basically the app not in the background. It needs to be running. It needs to be front and centre. Yeah, sure. I mean, that is going to impact on the effectiveness. Of course, people can decide, you know, if I'm going out and I'm going to be surrounded by lots of people, maybe that's one of those times when it's really important that I have the app going and in the foreground, etc. Um, there's also, I mean, I think the technology is likely to change over time. They've said that there are some changes coming to the Apple iOS that might be able to facilitate this. Whether it will work with this particular app is unclear, but yeah, look, it's I mean, it's a challenge making any of these technologies work. It's a challenge making Bluetooth work. So really just underlines that this is one tool, but it's not a complete tool to dealing with COVID-19. So do you think the app will be less effective because there are so many question marks over how it should be used, especially on Apple phones? Uh, probably, yes. <laughs> um, you know, if, it's, if you have to keep it in the foreground and people don't do that or aren't willing to do that or feel that it's draining their batteries. I mean, I've heard it doesn't from people who've been using it a bit. Um, that is going to make it less effective, but that doesn't mean it's going to be completely ineffective, I guess. Mm. So apps like Facebook collect and share our data all the time. Is this <laughs> any different and should we still be worried? There's a big difference between Facebook collecting a bunch of your photos, etc., yeah. <laughs> and 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 the government having information about exactly who you've been around and close to and for how long. Uh, that is, like, there's, you know, Facebook doesn't have the power to arrest you, to imprison you, to decide whether you get a passport or not. Like there's 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 just a really fundamental difference between those two things. The other point about this kind of oh, well, you give all your data up to Facebook, so what are you worried about? The other thing about that is that um, just because, you know, we, we might have privacy concerns about Facebook, and we should, and we should do something about it, doesn't mean we shouldn't also be concerned about other privacy threats. Mm. You know, you don't just give up the ghost and say, ah, privacy is dead. No, because privacy is really important. Protect a whole lot of other really important rights, like freedom of association, freedom of speech, freedom of thought... So, you know, it's, it's, it's really important to, to be aware of all of these risks and to deal with them one-on-one. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're talking to Professor Kimberly Weatherall about the COVID safe app and why we should or shouldn't be too concerned with the government mining our data. And we've got some texts in. That's right. Kevin from Mospin says, if the government wants to watch my Instagram lives and tap into my TikTok activity on the DL, I'm here for the extra viewers. Okay, Kevin, you may as well, you may as well have just sent us your TikTok username. So I know, you right? Promote it. All right. We get it. You're, you're hot. Um, Preeti from Newtown says, I'm torn. I understand how important it is to keep tabs on who has the virus. But after the last consensus and robo-debt, I don't think I can trust the government on this one. Have you heard the same sentiment, Dr. Kimberly? Absolutely. Like there are, the, the government does not have a great record on respecting privacy and dealing with privacy and protecting data. So I, I, I absolutely understand the concern. One, I, I do think it's important to recognise that they've tried quite hard with this one to do things better. So there's a number of protections. One is, and I 
should just note, I should have noted this at the start, the app doesn't collect location data. So it's not tracking you around and working out where you are. It is, it is literally just collecting the data it needs, which is who you've been close to. So they've done, done a lot to minimise what's collected. Second thing is it's on your phone unless you test positive, right? So it's not like they're creating this massive big data store um, that will be, you know, accessible to hackers, et cetera, et cetera. It is, it is on your phone. So that's, that's also important. The other thing they did was they, there's a ministerial determination. This is a, effectively a law that restricts what can be done with this data. Um, so, it, you know, it can't be used for anything except contact tracing or prosecuting people who abuse the, the app and the data, you know, if, if, say, a health official were to start looking at where their friends have been. So it is, it is literally confined just to the contract tracing purpose, and that, that's, that's been written into the law. So I absolutely understand the concern. I think the government's listened to a certain extent. The privacy protections could absolutely be um, improved, and there's a lot of discussion about the legislation that will come probably next week. Hopefully that will be even better. Um, but, yeah, look, it's, you know, the, the government is, is, having, is on the back foot on the trust score when it comes to privacy, and I totally understand that, and it's been a real concern. So even if the app is relatively safe, do you think an app like this sets a precedence for the government to start using personal data to track everyday Australians? Uh, yes, and and I think that's one of the biggest concerns about it. And uh, this, the thing about this app is that you know, like the, the government already has put in place laws back in 2015 that collect things like metadata. So that is location type data. If if the police want to know where your phone has been, they have access to that data because of the metadata laws. But this app does collect a different layer, which is who were you close to? Mm. And, you know, we have various criminal laws around the place that say that you can't associate with criminals, etc. So there are laws about, you know, who you're allowed to be close to. Tracking that sort of social graph data, as they call it, that, that, is, a, that is a next level sort of privacy concern. And I am worried about that precedent. So I'm really glad that this law will end. But I think we have to have a real discussion about this not being appropriate in any other circumstances. Yeah, I'm glad that there's a bit of a fuss being kicked up so that the government knows that we're concerned about it. Um, a, a couple of people are texting in about this. They want to know, could your employer force you to download the app? No, absolutely not. Um, there's, a, there's a provision in the determination, and I understand this will also be in the law, that, set, that makes it illegal to refuse to allow a person into premises, refuse to allow them to come to work, refuse, you know, basically you can't refuse people, service, employment, etc., um, on the basis that they don't have the app or they won't use the app. So, no, it's, it's actually illegal. So the PM says that the app is our ticket out of lockdown, but only if more Aussies download it. Is a digital tracing app the answer we're looking for? A digital tracing app is a tiny part of the answer that we are looking for. There's a whole lot of elements of the answer that we're looking for, right? You know, an app will only tell you that you are potentially at some risk from some proportion of people that you might have been in contact with of having the app, um, of having the virus. So it has to be backed up by a whole lot of public health measures, which are way more important, frankly. We have to have the testing. We have to have the contract the contact tracers working at, you know, double time and triple time. We have to be 
on top of hotspots as they come up and work out how to deal with them. So there are there are so many public health responses we need. The app is just a tool that will, in some circumstances, assist the contact traces. It's a very small part of the picture. So I, I think this is a question that we're all kind of <laughs> wanting to ask you. So fundamentally, do you recommend people download the app? And have you downloaded it yourself? <laughs> oh, I knew that question would come. <laughs> actually, I mean, interestingly, I haven't downloaded it yet, but that's because I haven't left the house since it got available. Right. Um, other than, you know, walking late at night or very early in the morning when there's no one around. So I haven't been faced with that. I'm going to be faced with it on Monday. I have to go into um, an office building on Monday. Um, I think it's I think it's really, really important that people understand this is this is voluntary. They don't have to download it. They don't have to use it. The law's been put in place specifically so they can't be forced to. And so I think people should, you know, make their own decision about whether they're comfortable with it, whether they're comfortable with that data sitting on their phone. You know, I mean, I guess when I when I when I go into an office, I probably will download the app. But you know, I, but I, but I, I really want to emphasise that no one should feel like they have to do that. Yeah. Um, look, we'll make a pact. I'll do it if you do it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you. That was doc- um, that was Professor Kimberly Weatherall speaking to us about the COVID safe app and what it can do to influence the spread of coronavirus. Don't go anywhere because we have Ed Miller from GetUp coming up to talk about how the coronavirus is jeopardizing our financial future and what we can do about it. That's right. We've got that coming up next. But first, we're going to play a song. This is Stop Trying to Be God. I'm looking at you, ScoMo, by <laughs> Travis Scott. See you all soon. The Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Fact chat, your alternative to talk back. As the coronavirus continues to hammer the Australian economy, young people are going to bear the brunt of the downturn in the future. And with small businesses crumbling during the coronavirus lockdown, applications to government welfare payments like JobSeeker are going through the roof. We have Ed Miller, Economic Fairness Campaigns Director at GetUp, here to talk to us about the economic cost of the pandemic and how we're going to be paying for it in the future. Hi there, Ed. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, we're good. Thanks for coming on. That's okay. It's a pleasure to be back. Ah, so, okay, we'll get right into some stats here. So there are predictions the unemployment rate will hit 10% by mid-year. About 1.7 million people are expected to apply for JobSeeker by September. The future's looking pretty grim, especially for young people. But is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Look, it's going to be pretty rough out there for a while. I mean, in the first couple of weeks of the crisis, there are obviously job losses of about 5.5% in a single week. Uh, for the economy as a whole, but it was more like 8% for young people. Uh, and that's because a lot of the kind of sectors that have been hit hardest, like hospitality, like the arts, uh, are sectors that young people um, traditionally work a lot in. Um, and it's also a pretty consistent trend that you see during a crisis that, you know, the last people to join the workforce are the first people to get, get kicked out of it. Um, so I think it's a, a pretty rough labour market ahead for the, probably the next uh, 12 to 18 months for young people. Um, and, you know, how rough it is and um, how quickly we come out of it are, are probably policy decisions. 
So there are a number of casual and temporary visa holders who can't receive the JobKeeper payment. Are you worried more people are getting pushed into the welfare system? Yeah, I mean, there's more than a million people on temporary visas in this country, and I think that they've been left out in the cold by the Morrison government. Um, and, and I think it's important to, to sort of recognise that these are the people that sort of live and work alongside us in our communities. You know, they're the chef who just lost their job, the, the young people who are expecting their first baby, the students who are here doing PhDs on things like cancer research. Um, and they're not eligible for the JobKeeper payment. They're also not eligible for the job seeker payment. In some cases, they're not even eligible for Medicare. Um, and there are a lot that state governments are doing. Um, the Northern Territory, South Australia, Victoria, the ACT and Tasmanian governments have announced various support measures for people on temporary visas. But it really shouldn't be up to the states to fill in the gap. Um, and I mean, if you look around the world, countries like Portugal have granted all migrants full citizen rights throughout the, the pandemic. Um, uh, the UK has extended all visas automatically. So we could be doing a lot more as a country to take care of the people that, that live and work alongside us. What are the long-term effects of having so many people on welfare? I mean, there are some really obvious impacts, like uh, you know the immediate loss of income that people experience. It often puts them in a position of uh, financial stress or rental stress. Um, but there are less obvious impacts as well. I think, you know, more than 600,000 people, many of them are young people, um, have taken up the government's offer to dip into their superannuation savings during this period. Um, and taking money out, money out of your super at a young age means that you're not accruing any of the interest that you otherwise would on those payments. So it can end up costing you tens of thousands of dollars later on in your retirement. Um, at the same time, if people are out of work for any long period of time, um, particularly women... Um, it can be, you know, much worse in terms of the superannuation that they would have been earning on wages during this period. Um, and I also think that there's something to be said just in terms of, you know, the mental and emotional uh, stress of this moment. You know, I, I think being out of work isn't just a loss of income. Uh, it's also a, a loss of skills or a loss of experience um, or a loss of confidence. Um, and I think that that can end up impacting people well beyond um, the actual experience of unemployment itself. So it's clear Corona is costing the economy big time. Uh, how will we go about paying for it in the future, do you think? I mean, it's a really good question. And I think that the answer to this question is, is really going to shape our politics for decades to come. Um, we're either going to see sort of a push to return to balanced budgets on a quicker timeline that's why probably going to entail sort of harsh cuts to public services or, or public spending um, that will leave our economy worse off. Um, but when you say costs to the economy, it's really important to kind of unpack what you're talking about because economists think about those costs quite differently. There are the real costs, the things that we've been talking about in terms of loss of jobs, loss of services, loss of the things that we produce. But in terms of the financial costs, which is like how much the government actually pays for stuff, I think what this crisis has revealed is that the capabilities of government to afford things are actually very different to what a lot of people thought was true. Um, a lot of the government debt at the moment is actually being purchased by the Reserve Bank. So essentially the money that the government is spending and the money that the government is borrowing is money that it owes to itself. Um, that's called quantitative easing. In other parts of the world, uh, central banks are removing the middleman altogether and just buying bonds directly from the government. That's called monetary financing. Um, and what we're learning is that there are no big, scary consequences to doing that. And if we can remember that learning, 
um, it's potentially a model for how we might solve some of the other crises like climate change um, or the unemployment and inequality crisis uh, in, the, in the years ahead. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swatha and Shami. We've got Ed Miller from GetUp talking to us about how young people will be affected by the economic downturn brought on by the coronavirus. Now, the Greens say that young people will be $35,000 worse off over the next decade because of unemployment and loss of earnings. Do you think young people will shoulder most of the economic burden? And is there anything we can do about it? I think that it, I think that young people are already experiencing a disproportionate burden of this crisis, and, and will continue to, unfortunately. Um, but it's really important to understand that that's not inevitable. Um, it is a policy choice. I mean, before the crisis hit, unemployment rates for young people were twice that of the national average. Um, young people are worse affected by inequality and unemployment, and income insecurity, and insecure work in general. Um, and those are things that are within our control to fix. Um, the government could be extending and expanding um, the welfare safety net well beyond this crisis, um, and it could be taking measures to in- introduce new industrial relations regulations that give people more secure working places um, and, you know, help make sure that a, a whole generation of people don't, get ca- don't, don't only experience casual jobs where they don't have the right to take a paid sick day. Um, and I think that those are the kinds of mechanisms that, you know, we need to be thinking about as we emerge from this crisis. You know, what were the things that made us so insecure in the first place? Um, and how do we address some of that insecurity proactively so that we're not in the same kind of um, fragile situation again? So we're currently seeing a liberal government giving out cash handouts. Newstart has finally seen an increase in a way the pandemic has really made us rethink a lot of the systems we have in place in the welfare system. So do you think this will transform the way we run and access these systems in the long run, or will we just go back to the way it was after all this is over? Yeah, there's no question that I think some of the political assumptions and political battle lines that we've traditionally thought were ironclad uh, uh, being reimagined in this moment. Um, and, and, I mean, that is exciting, but I think that the political future is really uncertain. There's probably three scenarios. One is um, what the government's calling like a snapback or a return to business as usual scenario. There's another scenario which groups like the IPA or conservative think tanks and some Murdoch columnists are pushing for, which is even harsher austerity, um, uh, and then there is also a scenario which I'm really hopeful for, which is a scenario in which we learn more in this moment about the capabilities of government in solving crises, um, but also the capabilities of each other. You know, we're seeing amazing things in communities around the world stepping up to support one another, look after their neighbours, and, you know, reports of increased feelings of solidarity during this moment as well. And I think if we can hang on to some of that new understanding Uh, about the problems that we face, new understanding about the capabilities of government, and new understanding about, um, you know, how altruistic people are down down at their core, that it could set the scene for a, a different way of doing politics in the future. It's always great having you on the show, Ed. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning. No problem. Great to be here.
That was Ed Miller from GetUp speaking to us about the future of our superannuation and what we can do to keep ourselves afloat during the corona crisis. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Another big thanks to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, Pip Leeson, Millie Roberts and Vanessa Lim. And thanks again to our guests, Ed Miller and Professor Kimberly Weatherall. And we'll catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play a song. That's right. This is my fave. Of course it is. <laughs> We know the script. Stop, I'm the DJ. I get to just say this Okay, this is my fave ISO mood track right now. Sure. Okay, ISO mood is a thing. I think we all have a, a sound, um, a soundtrack that we're all playing as we stare out of our window, imagining um, the days that used to be. Mm. This is American Girl by Taku and Wafia. See you all next week. Bye. <laughs>